you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Huntington Hospital in Pasadena actually has some good news to report when it comes to the Omicron variant of COVID-19, as they've actually seen a decline in their patient count. Now, that's certainly better than what we're seeing throughout Los Angeles County, where other hospitals have seen a continuing increase in the number of patients with the Omicron variant and its very high transmissibility. With us for the very latest on COVID-19 is Huntington Hospital Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention, Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, great to have you with us again. It's nice to be with you too, Larry. So let's talk about what you're seeing at Huntington. Uh, it has to be nice to see um, even the small decrease in people hospitalized. It is. It certainly gives us a little bit of hope. Um, this is kind of a pattern that we've seen before where we kind of bob around certain numbers. It goes up a little bit, then it goes down, then it goes up, and then it goes down, and then eventually we kind of get over the other side and, and we have a, a fairly continuous decline. So you know, you can sort of see that across the country now. It does appear that we've peaked in terms of community positivity and, and that um, we might begin to see uh, some improvement. But, of course, hospitals are always sort of the last stop, so to speak, uh, for patients that are um, severely ill with, uh, with COVID. And it takes a long time for us to kind of really get everybody taken care of and move along. I was looking at a report on the news this morning from Johannesburg, uh, South Africa, and, and uh, they were talking about there how the number of COVID cases has just plummeted. And at least for now, it looks like the hope that Omicron might drive out other variants and lead to an overall decrease. It at least appears that's what's happening now. Do you uh, take much solace from that? I do, but I think that we have to be very careful and be very humble in front of this virus. Uh, the part that worries me a little bit is the very high replication rates that are going on still around the world, and that just is a perfect opportunity for another variant to emerge. So I do think it's, it's uh, optimistic in terms of how Omicron may help protect us, at least for some time, uh, from uh, other types of uh, the circulating virus, and certainly Omicron protects against Delta. Uh, but I worry a little bit that all of that replicating virus still could produce another variant. We just have to be very, very careful with this with this pathogen. We're seeing the positivity rate uh, in COVID testing coming down slowly since January 3rd. Is that an indicator that we might have peaked, or is it just that we're testing well, more? That indeed shows that we're sort of following a similar pattern. We have a different patient population in the United States than they do in South Africa. Their population 
younger and more um, uh, and certainly uh, they've had a very widespread natural infection. Uh, but it's happening in Europe, and I think that we can follow that uh, pattern a little bit so that we look like we are going over the top and beginning to subside. So I hope that we continue to do that, but we'll just have to see how things go. Speaking of testing, uh, my wife today was required by her employer, the Glendale Unified School District, to take a rapid PCR test that they provided to uh, staff people. Lucera is the manufacturer. And uh, so you provide the, the nasal sample. It's battery operated, runs on two AA batteries, and the little device does the test 30 minutes later. It tells you the result. If you test positive, it gives it to you supposedly in 11 minutes. Fortunately, she tested negative and was able to show that and go to work. But what are your thoughts about uh, those rapid PCR tests? Well, I think it's just terrific that we're beginning to uh, put some money and thought into all types of different testing. Um, Certainly rapid tests that test either for uh, nucleic acid uh, the antigen tests, which are very good at sort of determining infectiousness, um, and rapid tests that may test for PCR, you know, the use of saliva PCRs, uh, they can be um, done very quickly without a lot of PPE. Uh, the turnaround times have to come down. We really have to have tests that are highly accurate, but also very quick so that we can identify people that are positive as they walk in the door uh, or turn them around and have them go home. And this would be is of huge importance for schools. And so I think um, there, you're going to see a lot of innovative testing techniques uh, as we move forward, breathalyzers and things like that. So we're really hoping that that will be a very important key to managing this pandemic. And the challenge, of course, continues to be the cost, because I was just curious. My wife's was supplied by the school district, so I, I went on to look at the cost of, to buy a Lucera. And it's a one-time test. This is You cannot use it more than once. And given the high cost of it, I thought, well, this, this is going to be difficult for people to use on a regular basis. It just wouldn't be affordable. That's right. You have to have things that are affordable. And uh, it's just such I think testing has always been kind of our, our weak link uh, throughout this pandemic. And we really need to get on top of it because regardless of the vaccines and the therapies and the other tools that we have to fight this pandemic, testing is always going to be a critical part of this to identify those individuals and prevent them from spreading the disease to other people. Chance for you to ask questions of Dr. Schreiner, the noted infectious disease specialist. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-KPECC. You can also ask your question by emailing us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. That's exactly what Christina in Eagle Rock did. She emailed us to ask, how worried should we be about serious illness for kids in school now compared to the start of the school year? Are there many vaccinated kids getting hospitalized in L.A. County? It's a very good question. And one thing that's been very different uh, with this uh, sort of surge is that we have unfortunately seen a lot more pediatric cases of COVID. Um, A lot of those children are unvaccinated, and we always know that unvaccinated individuals, whether they're children or adults, have a harder time with this disease. Um, Many of the kids were slowly beginning to build up a population of vaccinated children. That will be an enormously important part of controlling it. Um, We understand, though, that kids are kids, and they play together, and there's a lot of potential for transmission of disease. And so in that setting, that's probably why we're seeing a lot of pediatric uh, illness Um, It may not be anything unique to this virus other than the fact that it is so very infectious. 
Uh, and so um, the vast majority of children don't require hospitalization and don't get seriously ill, but some do. And we are certainly seeing the numbers of kids in hospitals now it's much, much higher than any of the previous surges. It's taxing pediatric hospitals like Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, just like the adult population that are taxing the uh, the larger hospitals around town. And, and, of course, we're also seeing a lot of kids out of school because they have tested positive. We've seen some pretty significant post-holiday break uh, numbers for positive tests, kids in public districts. That's right. Yeah. And so that's another disruptive thing that happens. And, you know, the goal of taking a risk and having the schools open is to keep the kids in school. So if you're still having to take kids out because they're testing positive, which you do need to do from an epidemiologic standpoint, it sort of defeats the purpose. So it's a very, very complicated process. And we're just kind of learning how to navigate this. Uh, But again, this is, again, we're testing immediate, inexpensive, rapid testing is going to be very helpful to kind of Uh, sift out the folks that are positive. We have some news uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Pfizer's new COVID-19 pill apparently works against Omicron in the lab. Three separate unpublished lab studies indicate Paxlovid is effective against the variant despite its mutations. Um, Pfizer says the drug's main component, nirmetrolvir, uh, worked in three separate laboratory studies. Patients take two tablets of nirmetrolvir <laughs> uh, with one tablet of another antiviral called ritonavir twice a day for five days. The company issued the results by a press release. I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Schreiner, your thoughts about this? Why do they choose names that we can't pronounce? I don't know. That one with, what is it, six syllables? That kills me. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is a, these are game changers, uh, what we're seeing right now. But we need to have more antivirals. What I'm very concerned about, this uh, Paxlovid is um, a protease inhibitor. These, these drugs were designed just like the protease inhibitors we use so effectively in HIV. And in fact, ritonavir, of course, is a very important part of uh, HIV regimens as it enhances the activity of the other protease inhibitor that you're using. And so it affects the virus um, in its ability to replicate and, and wrap itself in this protein capsule that makes it infectious. They're very safe. They've been well studied in not this particular drug, but it has been studied in pregnant women. That's one of the problems with molnupiravir, which is the other medication that Merck has come out with, is there's some concern it could be dangerous to use in pregnant uh, women. So these drugs are going to be very important, but we have to have more than one. And the thing I'm concerned about is the overuse and misuse of Paxlovid that will uh, render the virus, uh, will have a developed a mutation that will render it uh, immune to the medication. So we have to have multiple therapies. We may end up using combination therapy, much like we do with HIV, uh, to prevent the emergence of mutations that are resistant. So it's, we have to be responsible guardians of this medication, because right now it's really the only one we've got that's very effective and it's going to be a game changer for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals to keep them safe and out of the hospital. Was, was HIV the, the first um, pandemic where we saw a cocktail of drugs really be the most effective approach? No, because we've used that for tuberculosis. Uh, TB uh, can become resistant to one therapy, to one medication, and so that's why we use usually three or sometimes four medications to treat tuberculosis. So we've done this before. HIV it was very important to do that. We made sort of a grave error at the beginning of the pandemic by just using we only had one drug at the first time was AZT, and then we sort of would cycle through these drugs one at a time. 
and that just created highly resistant viruses. So the, the use of protease inhibitors, which happened in 1996 in the HIV pandemic, and the knowledge that we need to do combination therapy was a critical turning point in our ability to very well control the HIV pandemic in the absence of a vaccine. Lucy in Sonoma emailed us, I've been hearing various descriptions of, quote, mild cases in vaccinated and boosted people. Would the definition just refer to someone not needing to go to the hospital? And when will we know if Omicron causes long COVID? Those are very good questions, Lucy. The answer to the first one is I share your concern, this sort of bantering about of mild illness Um, We have had many individuals who were fully vaccinated and boosted, yet pretty sick, fevers of 102, 103 for several days, feeling very fatigued, maybe not sick enough to warrant a trip to the emergency room and usually not sick enough to warrant admission uh, to the hospital unless they have an underlying immune disorder. But it is not a mild pathogen. It it does cause significant disease, um, and it can be very debilitating, especially in older individuals or people who have an impaired immune system. So I think we need to be very respectful of this variant. This is not something where you want to, you know, quote-unquote, rip the bandage off and go out and get Omicron. It's not something you want to get. We don't know the long-term side effects, including long COVID. Uh, Presumably this virus can cause long COVID. Uh, And uh, so that's another reason to get vaccinated, because we know the vaccines protect individuals from long COVID as well. Should immunocompromised people get a second booster shot once they reach X number of months past the first booster? Well, you know, immunocompromised people sort of get a should have gotten a third vaccine, not a not a booster and then a fourth shot, which would have been the booster. So someone who is severely immunocompromised, they're taking medication that impairs their immune system or they have an underlying immunocompromised disorder, uh, they should get four shots. The issue of whether or not we should boost a fifth time or for those of us who've gotten three shots a fourth time is beginning to emerge that maybe that's not really going to give you that much more protection. There's some early data coming out of Israel right now that looks um, not terribly impressive. Um, And I do worry that the more you keep challenging the immune system with vaccines, that the the vaccine itself may begin to wear down in terms of its ability to protect. So I think we're going to, instead of boosting with the same vaccines over and over again, I think we really need to focus now on developing vaccines that are broader, perhaps what's called a pan-coronavirus vaccine that targets a, a very conserved part of the virus so that we don't have to keep doing this Uh, you know, every three or four months when the neutralizing antibody levels drop. Matthew in Altadena says, I'm confused about the rapid antigen tests. The efficacy of them seems to be measured in a variety of different ways, and they seem prone to giving false results. How should we go about using these tests so they give reliable, useful results? Well, that's a very good question, Matthew. And the, the rapid antigen test is most useful in the setting of symptomatic disease, very early symptomatic disease. It's detecting replicating virus, and it, it has a, it's a, an ability to measure uh, the infectiousness of someone. They're not very good at picking up uh, positive tests in asymptomatic people. So very, very early in disease when you've been exposed and you may actually really have COVID, um, the rapid antigen test may be a false negative test. But they're very helpful uh, in the setting of um, when you're symptomatic or when the virus is sort of beginning to replicate. And they can be used um, to sort of assess someone's infectiousness uh, during their quarantine. And that's why um, the CDC has talked about using rapid antigen tests at the conclusion of quarantine 
it's uh, the PCR tests are very sensitive, and they'll sometimes pick up sort of dead pieces of virus that's circulating around and still be positive. You hear about people that are persistently positive for 10 or 14 days after their infection has cleared. And that's because that test is so sensitive that it's picking up um, just little particles of virus. <clears throat> the rapid antigen test is more likely to pick up actually live replicating virus, and that's where it's useful. Uh, John in Irvine, his question dovetails with, with this last one, said if the antigen test is positive after 10 days, are you still contagious? We think so. It's, you know, again, some of this is a little bit into the weeds here, but um, uh, the other thing that you can um, you can look at with the PCRs is something called a cycling threshold, which is kind of a crude viral load. We, we need to have a better uh, quantitative viral load assay for SARS-CoV-2 like we do for HIV. Um, but a positive antigen test, even at 10 days, may reflect uh, ongoing uh, viable virus and infectiousness. So um, that's where it's probably most useful. The initial diagnosis is someone symptomatic and then kind of retesting them at the end of their quarantine. If it's still positive, then there's a good chance that you're still infectious. Um, whereas with a PCR, you may still be positive for many, many weeks after infection, and that's a little bit more misleading. Well, it's interesting because we were under the impression that the infectiousness, even though symptoms can last a long time after, that the actual time a person is uh, contagious is, is just five to seven days. It's a little longer than that, Larry. There's some good studies out of uh, Japan that have shown that with Omicron in particular, it does seem to be faster uh, and less infectious for the duration of its infectivity is a little bit less than, um, than Delta, but it's still around anywhere between five to nine days. And that's why there was some concern about the CDC coming up with this five-day cutoff because there's still probably plenty of people at six and seven and eight days that might still be infectious. All right. We have Amara in Seal Beach. Will someone who's been recently vaccinated show up as positive on a PCR antigen test by virtue of the fact the vaccine produces antibodies and the test is designed to detect them? Uh, no, because the PCR detects virus, not antibodies. That's what it does. It's detecting viral RNA. And uh, so you won't have a positive test at any time uh, unless you have COVID. Holly in Santa Monica wonders, are boosted people less likely to be hospitalized than those who have only received two vaccines? Yes, and that's particularly true with Omicron. Um, uh, we sort of now kind of refer to people that have been vaccinated but not boosted as the under-vaccinated, and that population is at higher risk for hospitalization and serious outcomes. So we really want people to get a booster. That booster locks in the immunity much more effectively than the first two shots, uh, and so I know people have sort of put it off. We've, I don't know how many patients we've seen that they had put off their booster and they got really sick and some required admission to the hospital. So it's just very, very important. It's an important part of your immunity. Get boosted. All right. We have um, from Christopher in Pasadena emailed us, for those of us vaccinated and boosted, would you recommend we keep current dental checkup appointments or should we postpone? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we don't want people to postpone routine health care um, too much during these surges uh, because we are certainly seeing more advanced disease uh, for all kinds of things, cancers and uh, routine sort of things that get uh, put on the back burner. You know, that being said, somewhat higher risk activities, perhaps having your teeth cleaned, if that's something you can postpone until we kind of get on the other side of this current surge, that might be reasonable. Um, you know, most dental offices now are doing very appropriate PPE. 
Um, and so I think that the risk is very small of transmission either way, and we don't want people to postpone routine health care if, if they can help it. L in Orange emailed us, I have a number of friends who've recently contracted and recovered from mild cases of COVID. I myself am vaccinated and boosted. Would it be safe to spend time with them? Uh, no, it wouldn't because um, it's st- well, you can spend time with them, but you should be masked. Let me put it that way uh, and be careful because just because they've had uh, the virus doesn't mean that they're safer. Um, you know, certainly uh, you are still vulnerable and, uh, you know, there's no real good way to know that they're not still somewhat infectious or perhaps, you know, they're going to get Delta. You know, it's 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 just not a good idea right now to assume because you've had Omicron that, You've got a free pass now to do whatever you want to do. That's really important, I think, for people to understand. It's it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is right now. So you still need to continue good masking and, and uh, care. Sarah in Echo Park emailed us, if everyone who's COVID positive followed CDC guidelines and isolated for five days, would we potentially be able to get out of this pandemic in less than two weeks if people followed instructions? We would certainly be in a better situation if people did that. But the unfortunate thing is this isn't exactly um, people, uh, the fault of individuals. What the big problem is testing is it's very hard to get a test right now. And that's why testing is such a critical part of managing this disease. If people could have accurate tests done at home or easily go to a clinic or their doctor's office or a drive up, you know, you go to get your lunch at a drive-in and you get a COVID test, if, if we had that kind of availability and accuracy, then, then I do think most people want to do the right thing. It's not that people know they're positive and they're going out and infecting other people, but they just don't know. And they're, you know, they're with their families or with people that they know. And that's how the virus spreads so quickly. So it's really a problem with testing, um, although, you know, quarantine and so forth is important. And yes, if everybody was quarantined that had the virus, we would probably get much better control of it. But in the absence of testing, we're not going to know that. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist from Huntington Hospital, where she directs the Infectious Disease and Prevention Program, 866-893-KPCC. Yalda in Huntington Beach says, I have two family members who are visiting from Iran. They were vaccinated with the Chinese Sinovac vaccine. They were isolated for two weeks, but are still hesitant to see my family, given that we're vaccinated with mRNA vaccine vaccines and they're not. Do they or my family have anything to be concerned about given the vaccine differences? Well, if they've uh, isolated for two weeks and remain asymptomatic, and if you test them, if they could have a rapid test or a PCR, but a rapid test would be easier to to get perhaps, uh, then they're safe and you can get together. The people who've had the mRNA vaccine are more protected. We know that some of the Chinese vaccines, these are adenovirus vaccines similar to the Johnson & Johnson format, are not as protective um, against a lot of the variants, including Omicron. Their um, uh, effectiveness is really uh, not as good as the mRNA vaccine. So I think it's safe for them to be together. I would recommend that the uh, visitors get tested if they can. And if they're negative, uh, then they they should feel safe with the other people, as long as the other folks that have the vaccines are being prudent about who they're contacting, because they could certainly carry the virus and give it to them. So there is some risk. But in the presence of good testing for everybody and observing good uh, uh, social behavior, I think it would be safe. Maria in Garden Grove says, what are the best ways to determine KN95 masks are legitimate and tested uh, or fake? And I would extend her question to N95 also. 
So they should have a NIOSH certification. That's the first thing um, on the uh, on the mask itself. And usually you can tell um, with the more counterfeit, and there are some more sophisticated counterfeit ones out there, uh, they should have the proper um, certification from NIOSH and uh, and the sort of conventional structure of a KN95 or an N95. Some of them are very good now, sort of um, good imitations, um, but they don't have the uh, the right material. The material should be uh, sort of uh, firm. The, the, the actual structure of the mask should be relatively firm and stiff, uh, but not it doesn't fray when you run your fingers through it uh, because the that's a very, very important part, especially of N95s, is the mesh that the N95 is made out of. But the NIOSH certification and the right numbers uh, are the best way. You know, you just need to be very, very careful. The box should have appropriate uh, trademark numbers on it as well, and that's how you can tell. Uh, and sometimes reviews online uh, from legitimate sellers, you can get a sense from people who've already purchased the masks, uh, their response to them. Um, I use an N95 mask that, you know, I could just tell right away, it's very well constructed. And uh, it's got all the NIOSH and lot number and all, although it's not very attractive, but, um, but you know, gives you that sort of extra degree of um, demonstration that it, it has been tested. We're at 866-893-KPECC. There's some who said that with Omicron, it might be better for testing to use a throat swab than a nasal one because of how Omicron appears to be more of an upper respiratory infection than those uh, caused by Delta. What do you think of that? Well, I think, again, this is another uh, modality that, you know, it's possible that in Certain variants, especially something like Omicron, which, as you pointed out, Larry, is is predominantly an upper respiratory uh, pathogen variant of of COVID, uh, that testing the saliva may be actually useful and perhaps more sensitive for early identification of infection as opposed to doing a nasopharyngeal swab. And, you know, for those of us that have had NP swabs, they're very uncomfortable and and not a pleasant experience at any stretch of the imagination, but they're very effective. Uh, so I do think that, again, testing uh, saliva, uh, looking at different modalities for testing and different areas of testing is all part of our future with this disease and, and other respiratory infections. We do uh, those kind of uh, assays for things like influenza and respiratory syncytial virus and so forth. So I'm, I'm hoping that a good thing that comes out of this is really having a much more extensive and deep knowledge about how to do viral testing that's accurate and inexpensive and effective. Mimi and Whittier emailed us, what is the current mechanism for variant testing? Do the rapid tests get passed on for variant testing, and how many tests also yield variant information? So the the tests that, you, that individuals go to get to see if they're infected are not um, genomic testing. Genomic testing is a very sophisticated uh, testing that has to be done by specialized laboratories. They do test them on nasopharyngeal samples, and the county in LA does about 10%, sometimes a little higher, 15 or 20% genomic testing assays where they're looking for the not only for Omicron but any other variants that might start emerging. That's a very important epidemiologic um, factor that we need to address to increase our ability to do genomic testing, perhaps doing it quickly. Uh, even bedside is poss- a possibility. That would be a fantastic development where we could say, oh, you've got Omicron, yeah. or you've got Delta. I'm not sure we're going to be able to parse it out quite that nicely. But uh, genomic testing is very important to monitor, uh, the sur- to surveil, basically, the emergence of other variants. It's which, uh, so going forward, 
is going to continue to be a, a really important part. But it's not done routinely on bedside uh, tests. I've say for me, one of the biggest disappointments about this pandemic has been the inability of public health officials to be able to do much of any contact tracing because this was seen early on as being absolutely essential to the containment of COVID-19. California now is uh, in, in its latest budget um, significantly upping the spending for contact tracing. But I just wonder whether there's even the person power to do it, Dr. Schreiner, because, you know, it's 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 very time intensive to trace that back. And I don't know anyone who's had COVID who's had really much of any contact tracing done. Yeah, I agree with you, Larry. I think that the public health, this the pandemic has really revealed one of the most critical problems in uh, our healthcare system in the United States and frankly around the world is our lack of resources for public health officers and public health departments. They are a critical part of the safety of society. And I think that um, it behooves all of us to move forward and, and really make sure that that part of um, health care is protected and, and, fi- and supported financially uh, with a lot of research and development in terms of new kinds of tools. For example, in China, they do a lot of, um, of contact tracing through cell phones. They can tell, you know, everybody has a cell phone ID. People were worried about the vaccine with the with the microchip, which, of course, isn't, doesn't happen, but they have a cell phone in their back pocket, and that's a good way of, of tracking people. And so a lot of countries have been doing that. Now there's the sort of some uncomfortableness maybe with some of that big brother sort of aspect of things, but that's that's a tool that you could use rather than making phone calls and trying to build the tree that way. It is very cumbersome and time-consuming. It is critically important, and, you know, it's an important part of controlling a pandemic, but you have to have a lot of people to do it. So we have to come up with some new innovative ways to do contact tracing and most importantly, put a lot of resources and finances into public health. I'd been uh, feeling so um, comparatively positive that no one in my family had died of COVID-19, and that changed over the weekend as a first cousin of my wife's uh, died of complications from COVID-19. She had been hospitalized for the past couple of months. And just a reminder that, um, you know, all of us uh, have that potential loss or have experienced that loss. I have friends who've lost multiple family members to COVID-19, something that, of course, continues to bring uh, this, this sense of loss and sense of lack of control and frustration about what we're all experiencing as well. And my hope is, thanks to Dr. Schreiner and all our other medical experts who join us each day on this program that provides some degree of peace of mind, some degree of understanding, of empathy for our fellow Southern Californians as we go through this together. Dr. Schreiner, thank you again so much and our appreciation to all of our healthcare workers like you who are doing so much on our behalf. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, uh, Larry. It just it does affect all of us. Uh, every human life is precious, and, and this has been such an enormous cost for the, the whole world. But I do think that we are moving forward in better places. We have a lot more tools, and I'm optimistic for the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.